you remember the good old days when all you had to worry about was getting your homework done and getting home before curfew? Before you had to worry about jobs, projects, working, when you could long for a summer vacation and a winter break? Well, this is the podcast for when you realize that life can be hard. Hold on one moment. <sighs> Finally, he's gone. The last thing I need to hear is him plugging another podcast. Come take a listen to my show, Adulting Ain't Easy, every other Wednesday on the Journey into Comics Network. The following is a Journey into Comics Network production. From the suburbs of Chicago and Illinois, this is The Paul Report with your host, Andrew Paul. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Poor Rapport. This is episode 49. We are on the cusp of 50. I never thought it would happen. And if my voice sounds a little different, it's because I'm recording from another new location, and this isn't even in the state of Illinois. I am currently in Utah for work, and that's a whole other thing to talk about, but I'm in Utah, out west. I can look out my hotel window and see mountains. It is like 90 degrees, which I never thought it would actually be in Utah because when I was here in January, it was like 20 degrees. So definitely a big change in the last six months. But I'm here to bring you the news, and there's definitely a lot to talk about. Now, just to precursor, I am not going to be talking about the Michael Cohen Trump news that's going on. It's still developing. I don't feel comfortable really diving into it yet. So I'm going to talk about some other news that's kind of pertinent to that. But I'm going to start off right away with what I talked about on last week's show regarding James Gunn. So since that news came out about James Gunn firing and Disney letting him go due to some past tweets, earlier today, actually, well, uh, yesterday, that's the time I'm recording, so earlier on Monday, the cast basically gave a petition. They wrote a letter, put it out on social media, basically saying like, hey, so, here's the article from The Verge regarding this. So, on July 20th, Walt Disney Studios issued a surprise announcement that it was firing James Gunn, director of the Marvel Cinematic Universe film Guardians of the Galaxy and its 2017 sequel. The studio was responding to an unearthed series of off-color jokes he made on Twitter between 2008 and 2012 that tweets those tweets made light of pedophilia and child abuse, leading to online outrage. Gunn issued an apology on Twitter stating, in part... Many people have followed my career know when I started. I viewed myself as a provocateur, making movies and telling jokes that were outrageous and taboo. As I have discussed publicly many times, as I've developed as a person, so is my work and my humor. It isn't, it's not to say I'm better, but I'm very, very different than I was a few years ago. Today, I try to root my work in love and connection, less in anger. My dad says something just because it's shocking and trying to get a reaction are over. My day, sorry. My day is saying something just because it's shocking and trying to get a reaction are over. Gunn's cast on the Guardian's film initially responded to the news cautiously or obliquely, if at all. Actor Michael Rooker, who plays alien pirate Yandu Udata, I don't think I've actually ever said his last name before, in the first two films, deleted his Twitter account in solidarity, stating on the service, the account will be inactive after today. We're very tired and upset over all the ongoing bullshit. Neither I nor my rep will use Twitter again. Twitter sucks and I want nothing to do with it. Dave Bautista, who plays Drax the Destroyer, responded on Twitter with outspoken anger and sarcasm. But today, the cast has issued a collective open letter to Disney, posting to various Twitter and Instagram accounts, expressing their support and calling for Gunn's reinstatement. Here's the open letter. An open letter from the cast of Guardians of the Galaxy. To our friends and fans, 
We fully support James Gunn. We were all shocked by his abrupt firing last week and have intentionally waited these 10 days to respond in order to think, pray, listen, and discuss. In that time, we've been encouraged by the outpouring of support from fans and members of the media who wish to see James reinstated as director of Volume 3. As well as discouraged by those who easily duped into believing that many outlandish conspiracy theories surrounding him. Being in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies have been a great honor in each of our lives. We cannot let this moment pass without expressing our love, support, and gratitude for James. We are not here to defend his jokes of many years ago, but rather to share our experience having spent many years together on set making Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2. The character he has shown in the wake of his firing is consistent with the man he was very every day on set. And his apology now and from years ago when first addressing these remarks, we believe, is from the heart. Our art we all know, trust, and love. In casting, each of us help him tell the story of misfits who find redemption. He changed our lives forever. We believe the theme of redemption has never been more relevant than now. Each of us looks forward to working with our friend James again in the future. His story isn't over, not by a long shot. There's a little due process in the court of public opinion. James is likely not the last good person to be put on trial. Given the growing political divide in this country, it's safe to say instances like this will continue. Although we... Hope Americans from across the political spectrum can ease up on the character assassinations and stop weaponizing mob mentality. It is our hope that what has transpired can serve as an example for all of us to realize the enormous responsibility we have to ourselves and to each other regarding the use of our written words when we etch them in digital stone. That we society may learn from this experience and in the future will think twice before we decide what we want to express, and in so learning perhaps can harness the capability to help and heal instead of hurting each other. Thank you for taking the time to read our words, The Guardians of the Galaxy. Signed, Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Dave Bautista, Bradley Cooper, Vin Diesel, Karen Gillian, Michael Rooker, Palm Clementif, and Sean Gunn. So, in addition to this letter, uh, Bautista and Rooker specifically references the growing political diet in this country due to the widespread perception that Gunn was targeted for his outspoken public stance against Donald Trump. The tweets that got him in trouble were found in publicized by a group of alt-right media personalities, most notably Pizzagate conspiracy theorist Mike Cernovich, who previously used a similar tactic to persuade MSNBC to fire contributor Sam Cedar. A few days ago after firing Cedar over a satirical tweet about director Roman Polanski, MSNBC reversed the decision. Guns, Guardians of the Galaxy collaborators are, hoping, are clearly hoping Disney follows suit. In recent articles about the petition, Variety says that Disney's failure to name a new director for the third movie in the Guardian series, which was scheduled to begin production early 2019, might suggest a plan to reinstate Gunn, but no decision is likely to be made until Walt Disney chairman Bob Iger returns from vacation. So no, you're probably with all of us saying that Bob Iger needs to return from vacation now so we can get closure on this story. We need to either find out if there's going to be more to this story, if he is going to be reinstated, if they're just going to go through an investigation period, the same thing they did for Chris Hardwick, which recently came out that he has been cleared to return to his duties with AMC, so... There's definitely good news on the horizon. Hopefully, Gunn gets reinstated because I feel like if Gunn doesn't get picked up, I don't think they should bring a new director on. I don't think they should even continue the Guardian series. I think they should just end it and move in a different direction with a different vision in mind because a Guardians 3 without James Gunn would be criticized heavily. It would be the same reason, be the same way like Justice League was criticized by uh, when they brought in the new decision there. So... We'll kind of keep up with the story. Hopefully we'll find some news in the next few weeks. With a start date of 2019 for filming and a date already set for the film, they really need to get moving and find out because 
I don't know how far James Gunn was in the script writing phase, but even if another director did come on and try to pick up where he left off, there's still not a lot of time. We won't see a situation like we saw with Han Solo or with other movies of that nature. So definitely keep up with that. And moving from one bit of entertainment to another, this regards CBS uh, CEO uh, Les Moonves. So the CBS board just discussed sexual harassment claims against CEO Les Moonves. The board plans to form a special committee that will oversee an investigation of both Moonves and the overall culture at the network, according to two sources familiar with the matter. CBS's independent board of directors said in a statement on Friday that it would take appropriate action at the conclusion of the investigation. Some board members this weekend spoke about their whether Moonves should step aside during the probe. One source says news of the discussions are the and the board's plans for Monday were reported earlier by the Wall Street Journal. The source still seeing money that the Monday meeting was scheduled before a bombshell report in the New Yorker Friday detailed allegations against the CEO. The director now plans to use the meeting, at least in part, to select a special committee that will oversee the investigation. It will be carried out by a third-party law firm, the sources said. The New Yorker report included statements from six women who told reporters Ronan Farah that Moonves sexually harassed them. The article also reported that 30 current and former CBS employees flagged inappropriate favor at the company, including CBS News and its flagship program, 60 Minutes. CNN has not independently confirmed the allegations. In a statement to The New Yorker that was also obtained by CNN, Moonves said he has promoted a culture of respect and opportunity for all employees throughout his tenure at CBS. I recognize that there were many times decades ago when I may have made some women uncomfortable by making advances. Those were mistakes and I regret them immensely, but I always understood and respected and abided by the principle that no means no, and I've never misused my position to harm or hinder anyone's career, Moonved, who serves as CBS's executive chairman and CEO, said. He added, This is a time when we're all appropriately focused on how we will improve our society. We at CBS are committed to being part of the solution. The CBS board's independent directors on Friday said in a statement, released several hours before the New York article was published, the board will review the claims when the investigation is finished. The board will take appropriate action, it said. Moonves has been running CBS for more than a decade and is credited with turning it into the most watched broadcast network on television for 15 of the past 16 years. Moonves has said very well compensated for his company's success. He received $68.4 million in 2017 for his role as chief executive and chairman of the board of directors. They made him one of the highest paid CEOs in the country last year, according to the Equilar Review of an S&P 500 companies. That's a little bit of follow-up with that regarding the fallout. Uh, this is a separate article from The Hollywood Reporter. Stock drops as Wall Street debates future and board meets. So as the CBS board meets Monday to discuss sexual misconduct claims in a New Yorker investigation, the company's shares were down in early trading. Investors seemingly pulled the emergency break on CBS Corp. on July 27th, as ruled that multiple women in the New Yorker story were accused chairman and CEO Leslie Moonves of sexual misconduct. The stock closed down 6%. With, while some industry figures were quick to speak out in defense of or against Moonves, there was a hush of shell shock silence among many analysts as they went into the summer weekend trying to gauge the fallout. As the CBS board meets money to discuss fallout from the Moonves claims, what is Wall Street concentrating on at this stage? A company's shares were down a further 3.1% in early trading at $52.33. The focus right now is less on the legal costs, but rather more on the substance of the investigation by the board pursuant to its fiduciary duty to shareholders. CFRA research analyst Tuna and Bodhi told The Hollywood Reporter, the potentially damaging nature of the allegations also raised a legitimate concern as to whether Mr. Moonves or other senior executives could ultimately be exposed to criminal liability under the worst case scenario. 
In the meantime, the outcome of the board's investigation could set the tone regarding Mr. Moonves's contract contractual tenure with the company, potentially raising the questions of management and succession. Analysts have over the years often highlighted the importance of Moonves's leadership in the company's success, which in large part explains the big Friday stock drop. We are not today changing our CBS outperform rating or $65 target price, but neither are we recommending investors take the current stock weakness as a near-term buying opportunity to accumulate CBS shares. There raises so many questions that it will likely change the trajectory of CBS Viacom merger negotiations. Veteran analyst Hal Vogel told THR and Embody argued, It would seem the allegations against Mr. Moonves are likely to significantly undercut or weaken his and the board's position amid the ongoing legal battle for governance, making it more than likely the national amusements could exert further leverage toward a potential merger of CBS and Viacom on Mr. Redstone's terms. You don't get to be a very strong media organization in this environment on the back of just one person, B. Riley, FBR analyst Barton Crockett said Friday on CNBC. Strong media organizations have been able, was able to stand these types of transitions because they have multiple people who are executing. I think that's what you have at CBS. He concluded, you should assume that CBS continues to perform whoever is in charge. Much Wall Street Bay is also focused on what the Moonves probe may mean on a possible recombination of CBS and Viacom, both of which are controlled by the Shari Redstone-led national amusements. One of the few analysts to perform a report quickly and before the New Yorker put out its report by Ronan Farrow was... Cohen and Company's Doug Krutz, a messy situation gets messier, he wrote while maintaining his sector best outperform rating on the stock and highlighting the legal showdown between CBS and controlling shareholder national amusements about control of the company. It's fair to question the timing of the story given the ongoing and somewhat nasty legal fight between Moonves, the CBS board, and the Redstone family. But whether or not the timing is just a coincidence has no bearing on the story's truth. Root said, we do expect the board to conduct a thorough examination of the claims, which is likely to take some time. Concluded the analyst, until the investigation is completed, we expect Moonves to remain CEO of the company. BTIG's Richard Greenfield, who has been critical of CBS and Moonves for not having struck a deal to combine with sister company Viacom, reiterated Friday on CNBC that he believes the firms are too small. Both these companies need to get bigger, he said, highlighting that Moonves has been opposed to CBS buying Viacom in order to get these two companies merged together, which is good for both of them in the long term. Less needs to be gone, but in a nod to Moonves' business success and creative instance, he said the ideal scenario would be for Moonves and Ficom CEO Bob Backish to work together and build a combined company for the future. So that takes us out of the entertainment world, and let's go into some business before we get into politics, which is why a lot of you come to this show. And that involves Walmart and Amazon. So Walmart is taking a direct shot at Amazon and making checkout lanes obsolete. Walmart is rolling out new technology in its stores that enable shoppers to scan and pay for their items without checkout lanes, registers, or cashiers. Here's how it works. Shoppers download Walmart's Scan and Go app, then scans the barcodes of the items they wish to purchase. Once they are finished shopping, they click a button to pay for their goods and show their digital receipt to a store greeter on their way out the door. Amazon revealed plans in December to introduce a similar technology to its own brick-and-mortar grocery concept called Amazon Go which is still in the planning phases. But Walmart is leaping ahead of Amazon and already rolling it out to more than a dozen stores in Texas, Florida, South Dakota, Arkansas, Georgia, and Kentucky. For shoppers without smartphone, the retailer provides handheld scanners. The stores also have options for customers who don't want to link up credit cards to their scan-and-go accounts. Those customers can simply click Finish on the app, then report to a self-checkout register where they will scan a barcode for their total purchase and pay for their goods. Shoppers in... Walks at 
some city in Texas, are among the first to use the new technology. It makes shopping easier because you can actually see what your total is before getting up to the register. You can scan it and it'll show you a purchase of everything and what your total is. You can keep track of what you're spending and I think that's cool. Kind of like the Jetsons, another patron told the Daily Light. This is Walmart's second attempt at scan and go technology. Walmart first launched technology in stores three years ago, but it never caught on. This may be another way just for them to save money the same way McDonald's got those uh, self-service registers to order your McDonald's. It's just a way they can use technology to replace physical employees. And presumably you're going to be putting your items in your cart and then putting them in bags. You already have bags with you. I'm not sure how that whole process will work. I'm not a big fan of it. I'd prefer to still go to a checkout person or at least a a self-checkout kiosk but i don't know let's see what checks out there but definitely walmart is definitely continuing their fight against amazon i'm curious to see how this uh keeps going on and another bit of it's not really not business news it's just interesting news that i saw and this is just a very millennial sounding article so teen burglar woke up sleeping couple to ask for wi-fi access police say so a teen broke into a home in california shortly after midnight last saturday and woke up a sleeping couple to ask me to use their Wi-Fi network, authorities said. The Palo Alto homeowner told police he got out of bed and shoved the 17-year-old suspect down the hallway and out the front door, then called 911. The teen was arrested about a block away. The couple's been asleep in their bedroom when they were awakened by the unknown suspect speaking to them and asking to use their Wi-Fi network, Palo Alto police said in a statement. Officers determined the suspect had climbed into the home after cutting a screen covering an open window in the side yard. Police said the suspect's motive for entering the home is unknown, but the victim reported that the two kitchen knives were missing from a kitchen drawer. That's kind of creepy. Police arrested the teen for residential burglary, prowling, and providing false information to an officer. They did not release any information about him because he's a minor. Teen allegedly, um, authorities believe the suspect is being behind a bike theft earlier the same night from a backyard in another home in Palo Alto. In that incident, a woman said she noticed a man outside her bedroom window, motioning that he wanted to talk to her. The woman notified another resident of the home, an adult in his late teens, and together the two of them confronted the suspect in the side yard. The suspect asked us to use their Wi-Fi network because he was out of data. The residents ordered the suspect to leave and then watched him ride away on a bicycle. They did not notify the police at the time. The next day, a man living at the home reported that his friends video to capture the suspect stealing his bike from the backyard, police said. Authorities found the bike near the location where they, depart- where they detained the suspect. Man, that is definitely a millennial burglar if I've ever seen one. And I know millennial is kind of a... Has a negative connotation, even though it means basically anyone in their 20s to late 30s, I believe. So, I don't know, it just seems a little ridiculous. It's just like a regular thief, but the added thing of asking for a Wi-Fi count. It always reminds me of that um, that stand-up special by Seasaw and Sorry, where he talks about uh, millennial ghosts. How, like, they'll get on they'll watch shows on your netflix or they'll uh they'll half-heartedly haunt you and they'll ask you what your wi-fi password is it's just a little random but yeah that's what i thought of and now getting from this to some news that you're probably here for and that involves everyone's favorite president donald j trump and like i said before i'm not going to go into the whole michael cohen the meeting from a couple years back at Trump Tower, but I'm going to just talk about kind of some other stuff going along around the White House and things that's going on in his world. So, one thing I thought was really interesting, this is the first article I found when kind of planning this episode, and this was a few days back, and that is that the White House is going to stop announcing calls with foreign leaders. 
The White House suspended the practice of publishing public summaries of President Donald Trump's phone calls with world leaders. Two sources with knowledge of the situation tell CNN bringing an end to a common exercise from Republican and Democratic administrations. It's unclear if the suspension is temporary or permanent. A White House spokesman declined to comment. Official descriptions of the president's calls with foreign leaders termed readouts in Washington parlance offer administration the chance to characterize in their own terms the diplomacy conducted at the highest level between countries. While news is rarely contained in the rote, often dry descriptions, they do offer the only official account that a phone call took place. Readouts are still released internally. Trump has at least two calls with their leaders in the last two weeks, including Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The White House confirmed that the calls took place after they were reported by foreign media, but declined to elaborate on what was said. The White House has not published a readout on a call between Trump and world leaders since mid-June when he called to congratulate the Hungarian Prime Minister on his re-election victory. The two leaders further pledged to keep United States-Hungary relations strong, the reader at the time noted. Michael Allen, who was a member of the National Security Council during the George W. Bush administration, said that by halting the practice of issuing readouts, the White House loses the action-forcing event of an unannounced phone call, or of an announced phone call. They lose the public diplomacy aspect of a presidential phone call Allen adopted. Calls with world are highly coordinated events that in the past have required careful planning by the president's national security team. Leaders are typically patched through the Situation Room and sometimes aides listen in. Once the call is over, both sides typically publish a readout of what was discussed. However, readouts have been known to differ between governments. After Trump spoke with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in April 2017, the two sides offered vastly different accounts of what was discussed. President Donald J. Trump and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke today. The two leaders discussed the dairy trade in Wisconsin, New York State, and various other places. It was um, very amicable. Uh, sorry, a little tongue-tied today. It was a very amicable call, the White House version read. Canada's readout was more descriptive. The Prime Minister and the President reaffirmed the importance of the mutually beneficial Canada-U.S. trade relationship. On the issue of softwood lumber, the Prime Minister refuted the baseless allegations by the U.S. Department of Commerce and the decision to impose unfair uh, duties. Tony Blinken, who served as Deputy Secretary of the State in the Obama administration from 2015 to 2017, said there are two main reasons why issuing the readouts are important. One is transparency, Blinken told CNN. There's a public interest in knowing who we talked to and what was talked about. Secondly, the re- these readouts help share the, shape the narrative. If you aren't doing a readout, but the other country is, then their narrative is going to prevail. Trump has been known to make calls to foreign leaders from the residence of the White House during what has been dubbed by aides as executive time. Before he was fired this spring, former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster often joined Trump in residence for his calls. His successor, John Bolton, is regularly present during his calls with leaders, a White House official tells CNN. The decision to halt the readouts come amid questions about what was said during Trump's one-on-one with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Helsinki, Finland. Trump was incensed last August when the Washington Post published transcripts of his tense phone calls with leaders of Australia and Mexico. He railed about the leaks to aides for weeks, insisting that fewer people be in the room during calls going forward. He was simply infuriated after it quickly leaked this spring that he had been directly instructed by his national security advisors in briefing materials not to congratulate Putin on his recent election victory during their call as reported by the Post, he did. The leak reinforced Trump's long-held belief there are some individuals inside his administration, especially in the national security realm, who are working to undermine him, sources close to the president told CNN at the time. In May, as French President Emmanuel Macron was trying to convince Trump to remain in the Iran nuclear deal, he and Trump held a phone call. The White House issued a terse two-sentence readout after the call highlighting Trump and Macron's shared commitment to peace and stability in the Middle East. 
while declining to offer any other details. I personally think these should keep going. I didn't really know this was a thing that was done, but it makes sense. There needs to be a public record of who he's talking to. Otherwise, it just becomes any other government. It's not the people's government. It's not a democracy at that point if he's keeping this kind of stuff secret. And really, if he didn't make... if it, I feel like if he didn't make a big deal, it wouldn't become this public conscious statement of like, oh, what's he, what's he hiding? But that's basically what he's presenting, is that by not releasing the calls or not saying who he's talking to, it makes us all the more suspicious. And kind of speaking of kind of his relationship with the public and with the media... So here's a statement of A.G. Sulzberger, publisher of the New York Times, in response to President Trump's tweet about their meeting. Early this month, A.G. received a request from the White House to meet with President Trump. This was not unusual. There had been a long tradition of New York Times publishers holding such meetings with presidents and other public figures who have concerns about coverage. On July 20th, A.G. went to the White House accompanied by James Bennett, who oversees the editorial page of the Times. Mr. Trump's aides requested the meeting be off the record, which has always been the practice for such meetings in the past. But with Mr. Trump's tweet this morning has put the meeting on the record, so AG has decided to respond to the president's characterization of their conversation based on detailed notes AG and James took. And before I get into what his statement was, I'm going to read the tweet. I'm just going to pull it up on my phone here. Give me one second. And that tweet is, Had a very good, interesting meeting at the White House with AG Solsberger, publisher of the New York Times. Spent much time talking about the vast amounts of fake news being put out by the media and how the fake news has morphed into the phrase, Enemy of the State. In quotes, sad exclamation point. So, and then his statement was, My main purpose for accepting the meeting was to raise concerns about the president's deeply troubling anti-press rhetoric. I told the president directly that I thought that his language was not just divisive, but increasingly dangerous. I told him that although the phrase fake news is is untrue and harmful, I am far more concerned about him labeling journalists the enemy of the people. I warned that this inflammatory language is contributing to a rise in threats against journalists and will lead to violence. Repeatedly stressed that this is particularly true abroad, where the president's rhetoric is being used by some regimes to justify sweeping crackdowns on journalists. I warned that it was putting lives at risk, that it was undermining the democracy, democratic ideals of our nation, that it was eroding one of the country's greatest exports, a commitment to free speech and a free press. Throughout the conversation, I emphasized that if President Trump, like previous presidents, was upset with coverage of his administration, he was, of course, free to tell the world. I made clear repeatedly that I was not asking for him to soften his attacks on the Times if he felt our coverage was unfair. Instead, I implored him to reconsider his broader attacks on journalism, which I believe are dangerous and harmful to our country. And I agree. I think all the news isn't fake. Sure, there are some people who emblemish the story. There's people that are pushing an agenda. But if you can't make the press the enemy, they're doing a job just like we all are. They're telling a story. But if you're only choosing the story that paints you in the best light, you're just providing biased news. I don't know. That's just my two cents on it. I think he only the only mainstream media that he f- sees as unfallible is Fox News, and we know that they're just playing up to Trump because they want to stay in his good graces. And even they got upset when the whole Putin meeting went south. So we'll kind of see how the rest of this shakes out. And keeping up with the whole attacking media, so... On the 29th, Trump blasts the media. This is a, an article from The Hill. So Trump blasts media, calls journalists very unpatriotic for reporting on government affairs. President Trump on Sunday unleashed a tirade against the media in which he called reporters unpatriotic for reporting on the inner workings of the government. In a series of tweets, the president singled out the New York Times and the Washington Post for writing, quote, bad stories, as administration which he amounted to selling out the country. of media coverage of my administration is negative, despite the tremendously positive results we are achieving. 
It is no surprise that confidence in the media is at an all-time low, Trump tweeted. I would not allow our great country to be sold out by anti-Trump haters in the dying newspaper industry, he added. No matter how, many time, how much they try to distract and cover it up, our country is making great progress under my leadership and I will never stop fighting for the American people. When the media, driven by their Trump derangement syndrome, reveals internal deliberations of our government, it truly puts the lives of many, not just journalists, at risk. Very unpatriotic, freedom of the press also comes with the responsibility to report the news. Accurately. 90% of media coverage of the administration is negative. Yeah, it kind of said the same thing before. Uh, as an example, the Family New York Times and the Amazon Washington Post do nothing but write bad stories, even on the very positive achievements, and they will never change. Trump has had a test relationship with the fake or with the media since declaring his candidacy often seeks discredit coverage he dislikes as fake news. He's at, at he has at times suggested pulling credentials from reporters, encouraged rally crowds to jeer media, and that's leads to attacks by labeling journalists the enemy of the people. The White House last week banned CNN reporter Caitlin Collins from a co- covering an event open to the press after she repeatedly asked questions about Trump's relationship with his former attorney Michael Cohen during a meeting with the leader of the European Commission. Media organizations widely condemned the move. Despite all that, the White House has on multiple occasions asserted it was committed to a, uh, quote, free press. So, this seems the more same old, same old. It seems like, yeah, if you're, you don't want to be called out or don't want to be condemned, you have to just praise everything that Trump does, which isn't how the world works. Which takes me to a very interesting article I found from Politico, which is called Inside the Mind of Donald Trump. He's grandiose, deceitful, and paranoid, but don't let him drive you crazy. Why is President Donald Trump behaving in ways that seem even ever more irrational, impulsive, self-destructive, dangerous, and cruel? Many Americans have been shocked by Trump's behavior, most recently by his taking the side of a known enemy in Vladimir Putin and Russia over his intone intelligence community. It isn't possible to reliably diagnose any individual from a distance. But it is reasonable to flag clear, observable signs of impairment and to make interferences based on the repetitive pattern of behavior. There's a significant difference between diagnosing a self, a specific disorder, and analyzing the meaning of the qualities Trump exhibits, such as paranoia, grandiosity, lack of empathy, and pathological deceit. Trump's behavior, we believe, is the predictable outgrowth of this psychological disposition exasperated by the stress of the intensifying criminal investigation he faces. Our assessment is based on descriptions from those who have worked with him, his own voluminous responses to real situations in real time, and above all, by our unique vantage points. One of us is a forensic psychiatrist who has treated more than a thousand individuals with characterizations similar to Trump's. The other spent 18 months shadowing, observing, and interviewing Trump in order to co-write The Art of the Deal. Trump's increasing grandiosity is evident in the superlatives he used to refer to himself, stable genius among them, and in the way he has consolidated his power by getting rid of aides and cabinet members who have challenged his authority. Because no person or circumstance can possibly satisfy his needs, nearly everyone in his life eventually becomes expendable and he becomes more and more isolated. Trump's growing paranoia is reflected in the vitriolic comments he has made about a range of perceived enemies, including Democrats and Republicans, allies in the G7, the intelligence community, the news media, and immigrants. His hunger for absolute power is evident in his bizarrely admiring words about despots, including North Korea's Kim Jong-un, Russia's Vladimir Putin, China's Xi Jinping, Turkey's Rakip Tayyip Erdogan, man, I said the name twice today, and the Philippines' Rodrigo Duarte. 
His frequent lies reveal his need to redefine reality when the truth doesn't serve his needs. Given Trump's volatility and curiosity and severely limited attention span, his decisions are not significantly influenced by reflection or analytical reasoning. Because not tolerate even the mildest criticism, he is largely immune to learning and growth. Instead of unable to regulate his emotions, he reacts angrily and often with threats of revenge to any challenge to his authority. Even success provides him with only momentary satisfaction. Trump's psychological disposition has profoundly implications for our personal, national, and international security. Unfortunately, Americans remain deeply reluctant to talk openly about mental health or to recognize how profoundly it can influence behavior. Because the president's level of mental impairment is so unusual to observe, it is difficult for us, most of us, to understand what catastrophic desperation such people can feel to fill their own inner sense of emptiness. Trump described to Tony a cold father with whom his relationship was almost businesslike and a mother who was mostly uninvolved in his life. Through Bandy's work interviewing men who are deprived in childhood of the love and support necessary to develop a core self, she included the stable internal center that holds their beliefs, principles, attachments, loyalties, and even their capacity for humanity never gets well established. Instead, most men, such men become almost completely dependent on, the, on others for their sense of self-worth. They become hypersensitive to slights. In the most extreme cases, their envy can prompt them to take sadistic pleasure in tormenting perceived enemies and those they think are getting more respect than they are. In Trump's case, his needs to demonstrate over and over that he is worthy of admiration overwhelms his capacity to focus on nearly anything else. While elected officials and much of the news media have avoided the topic of Trump's mental health, it is clear that our own adversaries have carefully studied his psychological weakness and determined how to use this to their advantage. As we saw during his negotiations with Putin and Kim Jong-un, ironically our own intelligence communities and this sort of analysts about foreign leaders. Trump's group unlikely will likely continue to diminish as he faces increasing criticism, accusations, threats of impeachment, and potential criminal indictments. We can expect him to become more desperate, more extreme in his commitments or his comments, more violent in his threats, and more reckless and destructive in his actions. His latest extreme threat to Iran is one example. He's likely to return to similar threats to North Korea. He feels that Kim Jong-un is making him look weak and unsuccessful. So how can we hold on to our men own mental health in the face of danger Trump poses? First, don't use logic or rationality to try to understand or counter Trump's statements and behaviors. He is driven not by reason, but by negative emotions that are infectious. Trump thrives on creating fear and sowing confusion. He lies without guilt. Don't match his emotion with your own. Second, be clearer than ever about your core values, beliefs, and principles, and rely on them for guidance and comfort. Especially when you're feeling most triggered and fearful, challenge every day the natural inclination to feel overwhelmed, fatigued, or numb in the face of Trump's behavior. This is what people with his psychological inclination count on. Trump is aware that whenever he says repeatedly, no matter how outrageous, many people are likely to believe or at least stop resisting. Lastly, recognize that fear is your enemy. Holding on to the opposition of realism and optimism is the best antidote. James Stockdale, a Navy Vice Admiral, was imprisoned for eight years in North Vietnam and tortured repeatedly. We said afterwards how he survived is relevant for anyone dealing with feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Now, I don't necessarily agree with everything in this, but it does give some interesting, uh, I kind of lost the word, it gives some interesting meaning to some of Trump's behaviors and actions. It kind of gives more weight behind those behaviors. So it's kind of interesting point here, and it's definitely worth further discussion, further research into his like the article says, the mind of Donald Trump. And with that, I think that wraps up episode 49 for me. It's been an interesting day, and I've talked quite a bit here, and I'll definitely be looking forward to recording episode 50, 
with Tyler McLaughlin from Podcastry. We've definitely made the range of us to talk, and we'll have we'll talk on probably a variety of topics. I really don't have a plan there because for those who listen to Podcastry, that show thrives without really a a uh, a plan or things to discuss. I might have a few th- things here and there because it is still the Poor Report, and I have some big news that I'll be announcing on. 50 as well for the future of the Poor Report on the Journey into Comics Network. So definitely stay tuned for that. You should have all the other shows we have on the network, like Podcastry and like the other shows I'm involved with, like Foodies Watching Movies, which just had their finale. We can check out the Ultimate 80s uh, bracket, as well as the show I do with my fiance Liz, which is Adulting Ain't Easy, which we have another episode coming out tomorrow. So definitely stay tuned for that. We definitely talk about everyone's favorite thing, which is being social. So... Definitely check out all of that and just keep up with what's going on in the world because every day there's something new to discuss. But that's it for the Poor Report for this week. This was episode 49. I am Andrew Poor and have a great week.